We are a family, not a family defined by bloodline or last name, but by a father, a shared story, a new way to be human. Jesus has invited us to more than just a party or a dinner with friends, but into deep relationship in the family of God. From moments of pain to moments of happiness, from grief to celebration, we are family. And despite the work it takes, the fights we endure, and the learning we do along the way, we need connection with other people, to belong, to be a part of something bigger, to know and be known, to love and be loved. We were made for life together. We were made for community. I love that video. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see those of you that are here uh, on campus today, those across the way in Auditorium 2, as well as those of you that are with me here in Auditorium 1, and those that are joining us online, welcome. Uh, as Matt said, this morning we are continuing our summer sermon series we're calling Disciple, and uh, we have been illustrating what it means to be a disciple of Christ with uh, this triangle. And we have said that discipleship is uh, life with Jesus, life in community, and life on uh, mission. That is, uh, it's very simple. Uh, it's not complicated. It's easy to get your head around. It's easy to give, get your life around if you are willing. And so this summer, we're doing three messages on each of the three rhythms of the life of a disciple. And we are in week two uh, on doing life in community. Now, last week, I proposed a working definition for community, and I said that gospel community is living in intentional relationships built around life and mission with Jesus. Gospel community is living in intentional relationships built around life and mission with Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus and Paul and all the New Testament writers, for that matter, make it clear that gospel community is essential for all disciples of Jesus. It's not optional because community is a primary way that we are transformed to become more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit uses the interconnected lives of very different people to strengthen our faith and to grow our love for one another. And the emphasis here is on very different people. We saw how Jesus' 12 disciples and the follower of Jesus that made up the early church, they had very different personalities, very different religious backgrounds, and very different political views. And the early church especially was made up of group, groups of people that never socialized with each other in public. Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor, uh, men, women, slaves, free, educated, not so educated. They never socialized, and all of that uh, diversity made conflict inevitable. And the same is true in the church today. Uh, disagreements and divisions and disunity always come with diversity. It just is the way it is. Unless we are of one mind about the one thing that matters most, and that is that we are pursuing life and mission with Jesus together. And if that is not our common goal, then unity begins to unravel. Now, with the current uh, social and political climate being what it is, I would say, I would bet that most of you uh, 
are experiencing kind of an undercurrent of anger in your life. It's more likely that you and the people around you are more short-tempered than usual, maybe more snipey, more snappy, gripey, you know, and when you think about it, it really shouldn't surprise us because with all of this COVID crisis going on and all the different opinions about that and the feeling that we're being pushed and shoved and manipulated by ever-changing information, massive job losses, businesses are suffering, disturbing pictures of injustice, and then lawlessness and violence in the streets. All of these things and more, they take a toll on our soul. And I've been doing a lot of thinking and praying lately about uh, what many in the church have called for years, the spirit of the age. That's a phrase that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul talks about how before we came to know Christ, that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and we walked according to the course of this world, the course of this world, or as some would say, the spirit of the age. And one of the damnable marks of the spirit of the age is a kind of divisive arrogance that sounds like, well, if you don't agree with me, if you don't see things my way, if you don't say things the way I tell you you should say them, then you're wrong, or you're a deplorable, or you're a racist, or you're a heretic, or you've drunk the Kool-Aid. And that attitude and that spirit, which has become the characterizing mark of, uh, of, of the media and especially of social media, that, that spirit has shown up in the church. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about all churches because I'm talking to pastors and pastor friends all across the country, and they're all facing the same thing. I'm telling you, no matter how right you think you are and how wrong you think everybody else is, this arrogant spirit of divisiveness is not the spirit of Jesus, and it has no place in gospel community. I'm saying that Christians are imbibing the spirit of this age, and they don't even know it, and worse, they're baptizing their arrogance and anger and calling it devotion to Christ, even though it doesn't look anything like Jesus. I'm saying the divisive spirit that we see in our society is the same spirit of divisiveness that's showing up in the church today. And that should not be. And so the question is, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the inevitable conflicts that show up in the church? What, what, what does the Bible say about how we're to preserve the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace? How do we live in intentional relationships built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus when these inevitable conflicts arise? Now, I can tell you right now, you're not going to like the answer. Um... Even though it comes right out of the Bible, you're not going to like it, and you're going to try to find a way around it. Uh, you're going you're to try to justify why you don't want to do this, and you're going to say, well, it's just not my style. So how do we deal with it? How, we, how do we deal with the inevitable conflicts? Okay, here, you ready for this? You confront it. You lovingly confront it. You see, a cornerstone of gospel, gospel community is the ability to have difficult conversations with one another. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Now, I'm going to continue to follow our outline pattern that we've laid out over the last several weeks. So, um, uh, you know, the outline pattern being like, I think Jim's was like five pictures and five responses, and then I did two pictures and, and one response, and now I'm down to one picture and one response. So it just keeps shrinking every week. But uh, anyway, so find your way in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, or I'm going to put it up on the screen if that works better for you. I'll do that today. 
But Philippians chapter two, I'm gonna actually read the New International Version, the NIV translation of the New Testament. I'm gonna read from the NIV this morning. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse one. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being of one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for saying that with me. Now, pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, uh, take these words that you have inspired here and work them into our minds and hearts and consciences. Use them to convict us of sin and correct us where we've gone astray. And Holy Spirit, cause us to believe that these are the words of life that we may take hold of that which is truly life. And may we do so for the glory of God and our common good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at the picture of gospel community in Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, uh, but first of all, before we get to the picture, by way of review and uh, a bit more introduction, I need to put the picture in a big frame, a frame that highlights a problem in the church that is directly connected to a problem in the culture. Okay, so um, last week I did a hand drawing of kind of the, uh, a, a picture of group life. I've got a, a, I'm doing that picture, but I'm doing it a little bit different. I'm calling this the cycle of community. And this is what people sometimes experience when they start going to a new church or when they get into a, a new community group or really any kind of small group for that matter. There's kind of a cycle that happens when you get involved in a new community. The first stage is idealization. I mean, you're excited about the people you meet, uh, they are very nice. They seem nice, and they're very interesting. I mean, you're in this group, and you're like, man, this guy's an architect. I've never known an architect before. This is going to be really cool. Uh, or you're like, oh, my gosh, this, I, I teach kindergarten. She teaches kindergarten, and, and we've got so much in common. We're going to be best friends forever, and, 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 you know, it's things like that. And you think, this is so cool. But then after a while, you start to bump against each other and you realize that it's actually not as cool as you thought it would be. And you move to disillusionment. I mean, you've been there, right? Uh, you know, it's like where, where yeah, our group's okay. It's, it, it's okay. What, is it community group night again already? And then some of the people in the group really begin to annoy you. I mean, you're sitting in a circle and there's that one person. Everybody's going around and sharing about their week, and she takes a stinking hour. Like, what are you saying? You're, that you're more important than everybody else in the circle? So you get annoyed, you get a bit disillusioned, and it happens in the church too, right? I mean, like, like you, you think the preacher preaches the word. He's really solid. I like the biblical preaching, and he's, he's encouraged you in your faith. And then, and then he says this one thing that you totally disagree with, and it's right at that point that you have an option. You can break it off, leave the group, do your own things, find another church. You know, it just didn't work out for me. Uh, I just wasn't feeling it anymore, so I'm out of here. Or the other option is acceptance. 
There's a level of acceptance, like, like you accept the fact that this is what the messy reality of community life looks like and feels like. You accept the fact that the community is not easy. You understand that there are different people at different places in their spiritual journeys and they have different personalities and perspectives and opinions about all kinds of different things. And you accept that and you decide to put down roots and to love the people that God's put in front of you. Now here's the deal. We're talking about discipleship. Discipleship happens in the space between disillusionment and acceptance. Discipleship and growth and transformation happens in the space between when you get disillusioned and whether you decide to break it off or to stay in. Or said another way, if you want to look at it from another member of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works to form us into the image of Christ in the inevitable conflicts that arise in community. And I would argue that the only way that we'll ever move past disillusionment to, into acceptance is by learning to do loving confrontation, by being willing to have difficult conversations with people, by, by being willing to love people enough to speak the truth in love to them when conflicts arise. Because the fact is, when conflicts arise and you risk stepping in to difficult conversations with people, either you gotta change or they gotta change or you both have to do some changing or you have to lovingly agree to disagree. But here's the deal, if you never learn to do conflict well, you're not, if you're not willing to, to lovingly confront, you will not taste the goodness that God has for you in community. And, and besides that, who doesn't love a little confrontation, right? Like, I mean, you're at work, you're walking down the hall, and one of your coworkers stops you, and they say, hey, what's up? What you got going on this weekend? And you say, oh, well, you know, I'm gonna go get together with a close friend, we're gonna sit down and work through some interpersonal stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I like to point out some things that he needs to be working on and a couple of things he needs to stop doing. You ever said that? Sure, no, you haven't. No, nobody ever says that. Nobody ever looks at confrontation like that. Now, just to be clear, when the scripture calls us to lovingly confront someone, we're not talking about confronting just to be confronting. When I was in the uh, navigator ministry at uh, FSU back right after the uh, earth crust hardened, uh, there was one navigator leader who was convinced that he had the gift of rebuke. So you didn't need the Holy Spirit if you had this guy around because he would just tell you what you're doing wrong and he would tell you what you needed to do to make it better. Gift of rebuke. I, he said that out loud. I mean, I was surprised he would even actually say that out loud, but I've not seen the gift of rebuke in any spiritual gift list. We don't confront just to confront, and we don't confront because somebody's annoying. I mean, she's just so annoying, I need to let her know. No, you don't. You need just to grow, grow beyond it. Let it go. Get past it. Get over it. And it's not venting about everything that's wrong with everybody around you. It's not venting. No, as disciples of Jesus, we need to learn how to do and I, let me put it this way, fruitful confrontation. We want confrontation that produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit in both parties involved, the kinds of conversations that cause people uh, to become the kind of people that God is forming us to be. Now Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you find that he's constantly confronting people in love and pointing them toward 
the kingdom of God. And I would argue that for us to live like Jesus and for us to grow like the people who lived around Jesus, we need to learn to receive and do confrontation well. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You might say, well, that's just not my style. Live and let live is what I always say, but that is not the spirit of Jesus. That's the spirit of this age. If you wanna grow to become the person that God in Christ has created you to be, if you wanna experience community the way God intends for it to be, then we all have to be willing to receive and do fruitful confrontation, but there's a problem. As a culture, we're not good at this, not at all. The cultural forms of confrontation are labeling and name calling and stereotyping and pigeonholing and a total inability to see other people's perspectives on any given issue. Here's what normally happens. Somebody says something that really bugs you, and you're like, man, that is something should never come out of a mouth of a human, <laughs> even more a human that I know, and then you, 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 well, what do you do? You blast away in comments on Facebook, and then you let them have it with the, you, with the hateful comments, and you, you say things that you probably, hopefully, would never say to their face, at least not, the, not how you say it uh, on social media, and we do that because the, the internet, the screen, it just doesn't seem real. The screen in front of us deceives us into thinking that what I say and how I say it doesn't really matter that much. And sometimes you send a link you know, to an article or a video that demonizes all the people you don't like, and you're hoping that that poor, naive, misled person will read it and watch it and come to the knowledge of the truth that you have. And when you get a lot of likes and shares from people who already believe like you, then you feel more justified to keep on posting so everybody will know where I stand. Where is that in the Bible, that everybody has to know where you stand on every single issue that's out there? How about if people know where you stand with Jesus? And that was the number one thing that people were able to observe in your life. I'm sorry, this, what's going on today in the media and in social media is not the spirit of Jesus, it's the spirit of this age. And Christians, sadly, some Christians are baptizing the spirit of the age and calling it devotion to Christ when it doesn't even look or feel anything like Jesus. How about, novel idea, how about having actual conversations with people? People that you disagree with. Have a conversation over coffee or, 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 or meal. Or how about picking up the phone and calling the person and begin by asking, hey, I noticed something that you posted online. Help me understand whatever the issue is that you disagree with. But get some clarification before you share your thoughts on the matter. Nah, we don't want to do that because most of us in the room would rather do anything to sit down and, fa and, and have a conversation face-to-face -face with people that we disagree with or even a phone conversation. It's so much easier just to blast away in social media and let the chips fall where they may. I ask you, why have we moved to a place where we're just not interested in having loving but difficult conversations with people we disagree with? One reason I think it's happened is because social media has shown our culture how to use shame as a motivator. Social media has shifted our culture from a guilt and innocence culture to a shame and honor culture. 
as Americans, we're no longer afraid of a judge that's gonna judge us. Instead, we're concerned and we're afraid of public opinion. Anthropologist Ruth Benedict, while I do not agree with much of anything she says about moral and cultural relativity, I do agree with this. She said, my paraphrase, in a guilt culture, you know you're good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what the community says about you, whether it honors you or excludes you. In a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel they are bad. You see the difference? And I submit to you that the social media mob mentality is one of the leading causes of this shift to a shame culture. I mean, these days, if you make a joke on social media that comes out badly, or if you like a certain post or add your comments to certain posts, the collective outrage of the mob comes at you with the force of a hurricane, and the next thing you know, you're being demonized, labeled, ridiculed, and excluded, or even sometimes, some people even lose their jobs, and no amount of I'm sorry is ever going to fix it. And... And you are shamed if you don't post something that people tell you you should post to let everybody know where you stand. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna play the shame game. I'm not going there. Because here's the deal. People today are using shame as a form of social control. Shame is a form of manipulation. Another mark of the spirit of this age, and it is not the spirit of Jesus in our culture today, salvation is now seen as being approved by popular opinion. And the new hell is being shamed by correct social opinion. In an article entitled The Shame Culture, David Brooks says, the desire to be embraced and praised by the community is intense. People dread being exiled and condemned. Moral life is no longer built on a continuum of right and wrong. It is built on a continuum of inclusion and exclusion. Listen, you gotta wake up and see what's really going on here or you're gonna be led astray. This is the new society that we're living in and as your pastor, I am very concerned that some of you are buying into the shaming spirit of this age because you think the rightness of your position, whether it's left or right, you think the rightness of your position gives you license to say and do whatever pops in your mind even when it doesn't look anything like Jesus, and even when it runs totally contrary to Scripture. Shame is a fantastic motivator to get people to do and say the right things as dictated by popular culture, but it produces people who think they're better than other people. It gives them an elitist mentality, but under the surface, at the same time, it makes people feel very insecure because the next thing they say or the next thing they do could put them on outs with everybody. And you never know in, the, in this age of changing information what's right or what you can say or whatever. Shame is not the way that God changes us. In fact, God's way is just the opposite. Because you see, the biblical alternative to a shame-based culture is a gospel-driven culture. Or I should say community. The, the, the biblical alternative to a shame-based culture is a grace-driven community. Okay, finally, enough with the problems. 
So how does God change us? How does he confront us? Philippians 2 paints a picture of how God actually brings about change in our lives in the context of gospel community. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, With that long, exceedingly long introduction to set the frame for the picture, I want you to close your eyes and do this little exercise with me, okay? Close your eyes. I want you to picture the person you've been thinking about this entire message so far. Picture the person that you, you keep thinking about. Oh, this is for them, this is for them. Now, I, keep that person in mind as I reread Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded with that person, having the same love for that person, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Okay, you can open your eyes. I see it really wasn't about that other person, was it? I mean, these words are for us. And, and again, we're not talking about confronting to be the righteous police. We're not, we don't confront in order to shame. We don't confront from a heart that thinks I'm better than everybody else. We, we confront to see fruit in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love. And in this passage, if, uh, if you're familiar with this passage, you may never have read it this way before. But in this passage, Paul is confronting the Philippians by reminding them of what's true about them, and he's confronting them with how they need to change. Now, the Philippian church is a good church. It is a solid church. It's a church that brings Paul great joy when he thinks about them and prays for them, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He calls them longtime ministry partners in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. He loves this church with the affection of Christ, chapter 1, verse 8. And he calls this church his joy and crown, chapter 4, verse 1. But like all good churches made up of all kinds of different people with all kinds of different personalities and perspectives, there are inevitable conflicts. Inevitable conflicts that could cause them, chapter 1, verse 27, to not stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is writing to confront and correct the conflicts in the church with the gospel. And over in chapter 4, verse 2, he actually calls out two women by name, Euodia and Syntyche, and he confronts them by admonishing them to agree in the Lord. We don't know what the disagreement was about, but evidently it was so intense, he calls them out, confronts them in this letter, and says, agree in the Lord. Now, I want you to see how Paul speaks the truth in love to this very good church full of people with very messy lives. Let's paint the picture in more detail. Number one, first of all, notice this, that Paul confronts the Philippians by reminding them of who they are in Christ. He starts with identity. 
When someone confronts you, when you confront someone, you always start from the ground of who you are in Christ. And I think most of you know that how you see yourself uh, tends to, it will determine to a large degree on, on how you treat other people. In other words, how you see yourself will shape how you treat the people around you. Like, if you see yourself as a victim, if you see yourself as being slighted by somebody in your life or the important people in your life, like your husband or your wife or uh, your close friend, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, if you feel slighted, if you feel like a victim, then you tend to walk through life feeling like there's somebody that you always have to get back at. Now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say it like that. You probably don't even realize you're thinking that way, but this is how you live. You're always trying to get yours out of life. Uh, you're, you're, you tend to have a one-track mindset on taking care of you. But if you see yourself as blessed by God, if you really believe that you've been given more than you ever deserve, more than you uh, really need, if you see yourself as deeply loved by God, you're far more open to people. You are far more generous with people. And you, and, and, and you walk through life looking for ways that you can be a benefit to others rather than always asking people to be a benefit to you. You see, if you don't know who you are in Christ, if you don't know your true identity as a child of God, you will constantly try to change other people for your benefit. But if your identity is rooted and secure in Christ, you want to help the people around you to change for their benefit. So to do confrontation well, to be involved in fruitful confrontation, you have to know who you are in Christ, and you, know, you have to know what you've been given by the grace of God. So notice what Paul says here. I'm going to read this first part again from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage from the message. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made a difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Now back to the NIV. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love for others that Jesus has for you. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Do not simply look out for your own interest, but each of you look out for the interests of others. Now, I ask you, can you hear the, the voice of the Spirit speaking to you in this text? I had to live with this all week long, so you're going to have to live with it for another 15 minutes, all right? I mean, are you able to hear the Spirit of God in the Word of God correcting you and confronting you? Because you see, who you are in Christ has to shape how you talk to and about other people. How, who you are in Christ has to shape how you talk to and about other people, especially of the household of faith, they too are in Christ, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ, but you've got a witness for people outside the faith. Now, here's the problem. When, when the wrong things rule in our hearts, we will forget our identity in Christ. And when the wrong things rule our hearts, we tend to react rather than act. 
and emotional reactions to what we perceive as wrong don't turn out well. And here's why. And you gotta get this, this is so important. An emotional reaction to error generates more error. An emotional reaction to wrong produces more wrong. If you spend time reacting to other people's errors, guess what? It's going to produce more error. You, you might even be right in what you say when you react, but you'll be wrong in how you say it. You see, when the wrong things rule our hearts, we will forget that our identity is in Christ and not in what we are fighting for. We tend to react rather than act. But as disciples of Jesus, sons and daughters of the king, we are to act on truth. We are to speak the truth in love, not react to error with more error. Because you see, there's more than one way to be wrong, even if you're right. So we need to know what's true about us and about others. And we need to be constantly showing love to one another. And that's the heart of fruitful conduct. One more time, when Paul confronts his friends, when Paul calls us to do fruitful confrontation with each other, he starts with identity. He knows that if you don't value who you are in Christ and what you have received from Christ, if you don't value, value that above everything else in your life, then you cannot and you will not value others and love others enough to be intentional with encouraging them and confronting them. So one more time, the first thing that we see here in this passage is that Paul confronts the Philippians by reminding them of who they are in Christ. So the principle for us is that fruitful confrontation always begins by reminding people of who they are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ and reminding them of who they are in Christ. And second, Paul confronts the Philippians by reminding them of who Jesus is to them of who Jesus is to them, who they are in Christ and who Jesus is to them. Verse five, in your relationships with one another. Stop right there. Now, what we are about to read in verses six through 11, this is so rich and this is so deep. I mean, you could do a whole series of messages on this ancient Christian hymn that we have here in verses six through 11. But I'm just going to make one single point to help you, uh, help show you the picture of gospel community that Paul is painting for us here. And that one point is tied to the first line there in verse five, in your relationships with one another. Paul is giving the Philippians relationship advice, relationship instruction. He's going to give them the foundation for Christ-centered gospel community, and he's admonishing them with these words based on what he had said in the last verse of the last chapter, chapter one, verse 27, where he was saying, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And so everything he says about Jesus here, he says to help his friends be more intentional about living in gospel-shaped community, and he calls them to have the same mindset as Jesus, and then he shows them what that mindset looks like. Verse five, in your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is so much packed in here. But Paul is not just giving us this deep dive of of the doctrine of Christology here. He is bringing theology into relationships. And Paul's main point here is very simple. He is saying in all of your relationship, be towards others as Jesus is toward you. Be toward others as Jesus is toward you. That's his main point. That is what he is doing by what he is saying when he lays out all this rich Christology. Have the same mindset, he says, as Christ Jesus. In other words, have the same mindset toward each other as Jesus has toward you. Or you could say, yield to the spirit of Christ rather than the prevailing spirit of the culture. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He laid aside equality with God for a time. And he literally made himself out to be a servant, meaning... He did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He became one of us by taking on human flesh. He humbled himself by being obedient to the Father's will by dying on the cross. He valued our lives above his own. He was not looking out for his own interest, but for the interest of others. His death confronted our sin problem head on, and he sacrificed himself for you. So Paul is saying, in your relationships with, with others, like Jesus, don't uh, do anything or say anything that is self-promoting or that comes from an attitude of, I'm better than you. Like Jesus, he's saying, humble yourself to serve others. In fact, value the interest of others above your own. And like Jesus, you and I are to sacrifice our comfort, our position, our opinion, our interest, and if necessary, our very own lives for the sake of others. And sometimes that means stepping into difficult conversations. So, in doing fruitful confrontation here, Paul not only, number one, reminds people of who they are in Christ, but number two, he reminds them of who Jesus is to them and what he has done for them, and how he's done it. And what Paul is doing with these two reminders, he's calling them and he's calling us to be for others what Jesus is for us. You see that? Okay, now, let's let's pull back and see if we can describe the picture of gospel community found in in Philippians 2. I'm gonna start with our working definition of gospel community again, but I'm gonna give that picture a bit more color 
based on what we talked about this morning, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say what I've already said, but I'm gonna say it in a new and different way. Working definition, gospel community is living in intentional relationships built around life and mission with Jesus. Here's the more color. By intentional uh, relationships, we mean intentionally intrusive relationships. Intentionally intrusive relationships. Now, I talked about this several times before in several messages in the past, and I got this term, intentionally intrusive relationships, from Paul Tripp, so thank you, Paul. Um, Actually, Paul puts it like this. Now, this is a mouthful, but it's really good. He says, immerse yourself in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. And I'm gonna let that be my one response to the picture that we've painted this morning. Immerse yourself in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Gospel community, and I don't think, I I don't know of a message or a teaching that Paul Tripp connected it to Philippians 2. He may have, I don't know. But certainly that definition or that picture comes out of Philippians 2 because here we got gospel community is centered on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Our identity comes from being in Christ and him being in us. Gospel community is driven by grace, not shame or condemnation or guilt. Grace is patient with people. It perseveres with people. It thinks the best of people and gives them the benefit of the doubt. Again, the biblical alternative to a shame-based culture is a grace-driven community. And gospel community is redemptive. It's redemptive. It heals. It restores It bears one another's burdens. It goes the second mile to win somebody back. It encourages. It challenges. It confronts. It forgives. So the response to this picture is to immerse yourself in intentionally intrusive relationships. But what does that look like? I mean, like it's a mouthful, but like how do you actually live that out? Well, I'm gonna talk about this next week because we're gonna look at a picture of gospel community from the book of Hebrews. A couple pictures, maybe four pictures and a couple responses. I don't know yet, but we're gonna still follow that outline pattern. But I'm gonna talk more about it next week. But uh, see if you can get the picture of what I'm talking about here by the questions that I'm going to ask you. And these are questions that as I was writing them, I'm like, I'm thinking about myself here too. Question number one, when in your busy life are you meeting with a group of other believers or at least one other believer where you are encouraging one another to pursue life and mission with Jesus? What morning, what night, what place in your schedule do you have for that? Okay, question number two, and these overlap to some extent, but are you pursuing an intentionally intrusive relationship with someone or a group of someones where you're talking about what God is teaching you, where you're talking about what you've seen God do in your life recently, this is important, where you are open and honest about what a mess you really are. The Bible says confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Now I understand the environment for that has to be a safe environment. 
But this is gospel community. Question number three, who have you invited to be intentionally intrusive in your life? Who have you given permission to to speak gospel into your life? Do you have people in your life who know where, you're, where you struggle? People who remind you of your identity in Christ when you forget. People who hold you accountable when you minimize sin. People to whom you have said, I want you to ask me the hard questions. If you see anything in my life that looks out of line with the gospel, I'm inviting you to point that out to me. Who have you given permission to do that? Who has given you permission to do that with them? What I'm saying is when I read my Bible, this is part and parcel. This is mission critical to gospel community. This is what, when I talk about the triangle, life with Jesus, life in community, it's not just a Bible study. It's not just having a bunch of friends over and, and, and even going through the, and discussing the sermon. It's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. This is what God wants for you, and this is what he wants you to be for others. Now, if you don't have a relationship like that or relationships like that, then question four, how can you move in that direction this week? I mean, if you don't have any relationships like this, would you begin to pray and ask God who you could talk to about this, who you could invite to be this kind of person to you. And again, I know it has to be a safe relationship, probably, but this, this, is, this is Bible. This is gospel community. I guess what I'm asking you is, are you willing to take this scripture and the application of this scripture seriously? And if you're willing then what's your next step? My message application last week focused on calling you to take personal responsibility for getting involved in some kind of community, a community group, a small group of some kind, or, and I know during the COVID crisis, it's really all this going on, it's really hard for us to get people connected in groups now. But some of you actually uh, 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 went to approach some friends about starting a group. And, and, and so this call to take personal responsibility and personal initiative, I was, I was really encouraged because I, I heard from a number of you uh, this past week that you went to friends and you talked about moving in this direction or you brought it up in community group uh, last week or small group and you began the comfort, uh, con conversation of how you could begin to be more intentional about creating community built around pursuing life and mission with Jesus. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do this week. Because listen, all the New Testament letters are intentionally intrusive. All of Paul's visits made to the churches he loved included having some difficult conversations that called for him to speak the truth and love to the people he loved. Paul loved his friends and he was willing to confront them when they forgot who they are in Christ or when they begin to minimize sin in their personal lives or in the life of the church. I recently came across a quote by a guy named Kevin Weaver, and I don't know much about him, but he's a believer, but I, I do like how he defines love. He says, love is the willingness to fight for the highest possible good in the life of another. Love is the willingness to fight 
for the, for the highest possible good in the life of another. Love is the intentionality behind intentionally intrusive relationships within gospel community. Love is the intentionality behind pushing into people's lives, allowing them to push into yours so that we can grow and become more and more like Jesus and so that the Spirit of God does his work of transforming us to be more and more like Jesus. The question is, I have to ask myself the question, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to fight for their highest good if you see them going astray? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to fight for their highest good even when they're going astray? And we'll talk more about that next week. Father God, we thank you that your word is instructive. It is very clear, Holy Spirit. You've inspired these words, and you, it's your, your desire that we would take them to heart and that you would do, and it's our desire, that you would do this deep work of change so that we're not conformed to the spirit of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live out the will of God, which is perfect and complete. And it's where life is truly found. God, I pray that you would work in our church and our lives to make us different people, be a different kind of community. Because the world has nothing to offer like this. And so, Spirit of God, we... We, we, we plead with you. We invite you to do your deep work in us for the glory of God and our common good. In Jesus' name, amen.